Good evening, everyone. I'm Father Charlie Gordon. My colleague, Dr. Karen Eifler, and I are co-directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the University of Portland. We are delighted to be your hosts this evening. We'll be hearing from our speaker, Father David Link, later on. Right now, the grace before our meal will be offered by the 20th president of the University of Portland, Father Mark L. Porman. That's quite a path to the podium. You get a piece of cheese at the end. <laughs> Good evening to all of you. Uh, to begin our time together tonight, I'd like to start in an unusual place. I'd like to read you an email from Chief Judge Sidney Thomas of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to a group of very distinguished judges of the Ninth Circuit. Judge Thomas writes, I'm very pleased to share with you the wonderful news that Judge Ed Levy has been selected as this year's Edward J. Devitt Distinguished Service to Justice Award. As most of you know, <laughs> as most of you know, the Devitt Award is one of the highest awards that can be bestowed on a federal judge and is often referenced as the Nobel Prize for the judiciary. It honors an Article III judge who has achieved a distinguished career and made significant contributions to the administration of justice, the advancement of the rule of law, and the improvement of society as a whole. Judge Thomas goes on, when you think of those criteria, Ed Levy immediately comes to mind. He has devoted his life to the law, beginning as the youngest judge on the Oregon trial bench in 1957 and continuing with his service on the Lane County Circuit Court, his appointment as one of the first federal magistrate judges in Oregon in 1976, his nomination by President Reagan to serve as a federal district judge in 1984, his nomination to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 1987, as well as his appointment by Chief Justice Rehnquist to a seven-year term on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. Judge Thomas says, it's a good day for our circuit and the District of Oregon. Well, if I might be so bold, it's also a good day for the University of Portland and its class of 1950, of which Judge Levy was a member. Please join me in offering Ed and Eileen our warm congratulations. <laughs> And with that, let us bow our heads and pray for God's blessing. Gracious and loving God, as we gather this evening with your Holy Spirit in our midst, send your light and hope and guidance and wisdom to all who are here. We offer our prayers in a special way tonight for those who seek and administer justice in all its forms. We pray for attorneys, for judges, for those who create laws, those who apply them and review them, 
for students of law, for those who serve on juries, for all who establish and sustain the common good, and for all whose labors rest on the virtues of right reason and prudence and equity. Be with us in our com company tonight. Bless our conversation, the community we share. Let the nourishment of this food we're about to receive strengthen us for generous service of Christ, who is the source of our dignity and justice and peace. We ask this as we do all things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bon appetit. It's time to introduce our speaker uh, this evening. Please, of course, uh, carry on enjoying your, your desserts. Our speaker this evening, Father David T. Link, holds four doctorates, two in law and one each in science and letters. Before the loss of his wife of 45 years, Barbara, and his call to the seminary, he was the Joseph A. Matson Dean Emeritus and Professor of Law at the Notre Dame Law School. He left his position as partner in the Chicago law firm of Winston and Strawn to join the Notre Dame faculty in 1970. He first taught tax law, drawing upon his experience in the office of the chief counsel of the Internal Revenue Service. He became the law school's dean in 1975 and his 24-year term as dean is the longest tenure among American law school deans. Throughout his teaching career, he taught professional ethics to first-year law students. He was the first president of the University of Notre Dame, Australia, the founding dean of the law school at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the deputy vice chancellor and provost of the University of St. Augustine in South Africa. He co-founded the Center for the Homeless in South Bend, Indiana, which over the last 27 years has helped more than 55,000 people escape homelessness and which has become a national model for programs of its kind. Under Dean Link, Notre Dame implemented a pervasive program of ethics instruction. He directed that every professor in every course is expected to discuss ethics along with substantive theoretical and procedural law. He once observed that when he graduated from law school in 1961, people learned to practice law at the feet of a master. Even if you went into solo practice, there was someone in town to mentor you and to teach the practice of law. Somewhere along the line, however, the mentoring system broke down. Dean Link's solution was to turn the law school itself into a community of mentors by the example set by the faculty through whom the students absorb the skills and values needed to practice law. He has remarked that the predecessors of today's lawyers were not so much adversaries as advocates and guardians 
of the judge's efforts to maintain justice and peace in the community. Thus, the legal profession has its origin in healing. The primary goal of a healing lawyer is peacemaking. Peacemaking is not a substitute for adversarial ethics. In fact, the two are complementary. Dean Link retired in 1999. Father Link was ordained in 2008 for the Diocese of Gary, Indiana. Five years later, he told an interviewer that every morning when he looks in the mirror, he thinks, what is this priest doing in my bathroom? <laughs> but he added, it's a pleasant shock. I love being a priest. I love prison ministry. He currently serves as the chaplain at six prisons in the state of Indiana, where in his own words, he ministers to the least, the last, and the lonely. He serves as both a spiritual and a surrogate father to the inmates who call him Doc. Ladies and gentlemen, the University of Portland and the Archdiocese of Portland are honored to welcome this year's Red Mass speaker, Father David Doc Link. After that introduction, uh, I don't know if I got anything more to say. <laughs> um, that was beautiful. My, if my mother were alive, she'd be very pleased. If my dad were alive, he'd be very surprised. <laughs> Archbishop, Archbishop Emeritus, Bishop, uh, Reverend Father President, uh, my uh, priest colleagues, religious, Ed Levy and uh, the other members of the judiciary, it's a great privilege for me to be here. And uh, I greet you all, including uh, all of my other friends from this great university, um, I'm really pleased to address you all. Good evening. My name is Dave. And I'm a recovering lawyer. <laughs> I asked Father Charlie to give me a short introduction. Mainly because we have... Uh, an urgent topic to discuss, one that uh, our Holy Father discusses a lot. I also uh, remember what happened to a very famous trial lawyer named Chauncey Depew. Chauncey was uh, one of the remarkable people in dealing with a jury. He was a great appellate advocate tried a lot of cases before the United States Supreme Court. 
He was a coveted after-dinner speaker, a raconteur, and he got the ultimate challenge at one point to introduce the great William Howard Taft, the only man who's been both President of the United States and Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And Chauncey got a little carried away, as we trial lawyers uh, have a habit of doing. It took him 45 minutes to introduce the great man. <laughs> and he ended with a flurry, again, as we trial lawyers tend to do. He said, I want to present to you our speaker, a man pregnant with a sense of history, <laughs> a man pregnant with a sense of ethics, a man pregnant with values. This 350-pound man <laughs> waddled to the microphone and said very quietly, which was his manner, about this pregnancy. <laughs> if it be a boy, I will call him William Howard after myself. And if it be a girl, I will call her Mary after my good wife. But if, as I suspect, It'd only be gas, I'm going to call it Chauncey Depew. <laughs> so now to our urgent topic. <laughs> On the occasion of this Red Mass celebration, I'm here to share with you my personal epiphany, uh, an awareness that affected my entire professional life, as an attorney, as a professor, as a university administrator, and as a priest. And hopefully this story will uh, affect your lives. It is important that we review the three ancient healing professions. As the hunters and gatherers of the world moved into villages, they realized that they needed some experts because people couldn't do all the things. So they'd have to have some experts. And they had one that uh, dealt with the uh, problems of the body, questions of life and death and wellness, whether we call them a witch doctor or a herb healer, they were the start of the medical professions. There was another expert that they chose for their villages that treated the healing of the soul or the spirit, and that was, of course, whatever we call them, whether we call them a shaman or a faith healer or an incanting healer, that was really the start of the clergy. But it's often forgotten that there was a third professional who dealt with the problems of societal living, property ownership, passing of ownership, social deviance, what to do about rule breakers. These were the precursors of today's legal professions. They had little interest in punishment and no interest in separating people from society. On the contrary, I found that these attorneys were then and can still be the leaders of society I came to realize that that's what all of us are all about, healing. 
That's what the Holy Father, Pope Francis, expects of us, to be healers for the poor and for the incarcerated. Bill Moyers, who you've all heard of in his book, Healing in the Mind, distinguishes between treatment and curing and healing. He said most medical doctors, the book is about medicine, and he says most medical doctors are taught in medical school how to treat a particular disease. Some are even good enough to offer a cure. But many of them forget that their real job is to heal. Healing is simply helping people make their lives livable. My late wife was never cured of cancer, but she was healed. I know where she is now, and she's with me right now. Of course, we who are judges and lawyers and paralegals and other law professionals are not the healers of society. God is. But Chief Justice Warren Burger once offered the following relevant advice. Lawsuits, he said, like wars, often occur when lawyers and statesmen fail in their role as healers and peacemakers. This healing function ought to be the primary role of the lawyer in the highest conception of our profession. I've been blessed to follow the healer, leader, path. As a result, mine has been a life that one of our alumni referred to recently as going from success to significance. So what have I learned that I can share with you? As most of you know, I now spend almost all of my time in prison ministry. There is some evidence that for many people, incarceration is a modern form of slavery, a way of keeping poor people in their places. I experience that on a daily basis. If you wonder why I don't spend my time in the usual retirement activities, the answer was provided in a letter I received from a prisoner whom I counseled in South Dakota. His letter in its entirety reads, I was in prison and you visited me. Thank you. It's a reflection of scripture, obviously. Not by some theologian, but by a prisoner. I could get no greater reward than that letter. If you think about other passages from the Bible, be mindful of prisoners as if sharing their imprisonment. In the book of Isaiah we read, he has sent me to bring glad tidings to the lowly, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners. Don't get me wrong. I'm not some do-gooder saying let them all out. We will always need prisons so we can separate the psychopaths, the crazies, and those that the prisoners call 
the SOS, that means stuck on stupid. <laughs> we have to separate all those people from the rest of society so that we can be safe. However, I am convinced that most people who are now incarcerated, and by the way, the incarceration, we have 5% we have of the world's population in the United States, right? And we have 25% of the world's incarceration. Now, we may be a crummy country, but we're not that bad. But I'm convinced that many of the people who are now incarcerated can be better treated for their social illness in a community correction center or a house of healing. So what have I learned from my ministry? First of all, I've learned that not all prisoners are alike. They are not as I and many other people have assumed bad people committed to a life of crime or to social deviance. They are, in fact, individuals with individual problems and they are in need of individual treatment. They're not bad people. For the most part, the people I serve are good people who have made some horrible decisions in their lives. But our Lord tells us that everyone is redeemable. In the movie The Green Mile, have anybody seen The Green Mile? I hope a lot of have. The character played by Tom Hanks says, Percy, you would be better off if you thought of this place as the critical care unit of a hospital. Hanks had it right. Most people in prison are not bad, but they are sick. It's a social illness, but it's a sickness that we do know how to treat. And if you have a lot of money, we'll be glad to treat you. But most people, I had a guy come up to me in the prison and, and ask about why a certain person, I'm not going to name the person, wasn't in prison because this person's done a lot of bad things. And I said, well, he's got a lot of money. He said, well, that shouldn't make any difference. Uh, the, and I said, let me give you an assignment. I gave him a pad of paper and a pen. And I said, I want you to go out to the yard, take down the, le the name of every rich person you meet in, this, in the yard. Well, there aren't any rich people in this prison. I said, give me the pad back. The assignment's over. <laughs> Tra treating all prisoners alike may be convenient for warehousing purposes, but it's a disaster when it comes to doing rehabilitation. Prisoners come from dysfunctional families, from poverty, abuse, bad neighborhoods, knucklehead friends, use of alcohol or other drugs to deaden the pain of life. Think about it. Most of the people in prison did not fall into the cracks. They were born in the cracks. To put a face on those who are incarcerated, I'm going to introduce you to the talent that is wasted by our prison systems. For example, at one of our facilities, we have a master finished carpenter in the population. I don't mean he's just a good carpenter, he's a master finished carpenter. He's so good that the superintendent, the guy we usually call the warden, asked this prisoner to come and remodel the kitchen at the superintendent's home. The super urged him. He said, we won't pay you prison wages, we'll pay you what you would get on the outside, you are the best, and you will have carte blanche. My wife wants you to put in new appliances, new cabinets, 
new counters, fit it all together. The inmate replied, I'm sorry, sir, I'd really like to help, but I can't. You see, that's why I'm in this prison. Counterfeiting. Eventually, that'll come across. Now, that, of course, is an attempt at a joke told to me by a prisoner. And I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this all in. I'm thinking, I know all these guys. Who could this be? But, <laughs> However, I will tell you that we indeed do have some very talented people wasting away in our prisons. For example, there is an accomplished portrait artist at uh, Indiana State Prison. He's as good as any artist I've ever studied on the outside. His name is John Applegate, but he signs all of his remarkable paintings by a pseudonym, Mypha Thurston, or said properly, My Father's Son. This talented artist who had never painted before entering prison dedicates all of his magnificent work to his father who can see him only every 15 days and doesn't bother to come. There are many talented writers and musicians, poets, songwriters, other artists in prison, and I'm not talking about amateurs. There are some very gifted lives being wasted. I want you to look at, if I can find it, this chess set. Everything you see, this beautiful board, all of these wonderful little pieces, and you can come up and take a look at it at some point. Those were all carefully crafted by a prisoner. The rooks, the kings, the queens, my favorites, of course, the bishops. <laughs> carefully handcrafted by a prisoner out of popsicle sticks. When you look at this board, you're going to say, that's impossible. Those are all popsicle sticks. All of it. The back of it. All popsicle sticks. Take a look at these hats and scarves. These were all, uh, and this, this is, this is in blue and gold for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> and this is for a newborn. Hats and scarves. These were all crocheted by a group of prisoners. Over 300 of them were crocheted by maximum security prisoners and donated to the Caps for Kids charity. I get a kick of, out of thinking about these big tough guys with all their muscles and tattoos sitting around knitting. <laughs> for a group of disadvantaged kids who the prisoners will never see. Additionally, the prisoners have donated $1,500 to that same charity. Now, when you think about the fact that prisoners make 10 cents up to 25 cents per hour, there's a lot of hours put into getting $1,500 together, but they do it. As to personalities, I'm anxious to tell you about a man named Tommy, a prisoner I met at Indiana State Prison. Tommy told me that when he first came to Indiana State Prison, he was the proverbial baddest man in town. Tommy's dad split when Tommy was two years old, 
Tommy's mom had to take two jobs to support Tommy and his brother and his sister. So Tommy was on the street at age two. By age six, Tommy carried a gun and a knife. His favorite pastime as a teenager was simply to wander into some bar and beat the heck out of a stranger, just to show that he was a tough guy. When Tommy's mother and sister died within a week of each other, Tommy was bitter. He said he had only two words going through his head, suicide or homicide. He said he had no reason to live, and he didn't think anybody else had any reason to live. He said if he could have gotten out of his jail cell at that time, he would have killed the first SOB he could get his hands on. By the way, they don't abbreviate a lot in prisons these days, so I cleaned that story up for you. But uh, surprisingly, one day a volunteer came to Tommy's cell and started talking about God and spirituality, about turning his life to a good purpose. And Tommy started down a new path. At about the time that all this happened, Tommy had just finished building a small model Thunderbird car. And at that same time, a gang war broke out in the prison. And the leader of one of the gangs came to Tommy and said, I want to buy that car. Tommy said, well, that's very nice of you, but it's not for sale. The gang leader said, come on, man, everything and everyone has a price. What do you need? Money, alcohol, other drugs, smokes, smuggled in on the outside. Tommy said, you don't seem to understand. It's not for sale. The gang leader stomped off, calling Tommy some pretty nasty names. Later the, that same day, though, the gang leader came back and said, Tommy, I really want that little Thunderbird, and I'll do anything. Tommy's apparent, I wasn't present, but I talked to someone who was. Tommy said, oh, you've changed your offer. Before you said you would buy the Thunderbird. Now you say you'll do anything. Here's the deal. It's got three parts. Miss any part, you don't get the model car. First thing is, I want you to stop the gang war today. Not tomorrow. Tomorrow's too late. No car. Do it today. All you got to do is tell your boys it's over, and it's over. The second thing I want you to do is pray for your Hispanic brothers here in this prison. Seems to me that's right out of scripture. Pray for your enemies. The third thing I want you to do is come to Mass with me and learn about this dude that people call Jesus. I'm pleased to tell you, my friends, that the gang leader did all three. And Tommy gave him the model car. So Tommy, this former baddest man in town, changed lives, not just of the gang leader, but of many others in that facility. You might think Tommy is unique. No, Tommy's an exceptional person. But there are many like Tommy in our prisons. Let me read you an answer to the question, what is the best thing you will ever do? Quote, I think the most important thing I will ever do is to never get tired of growing 
and evolving into what God made me to be. If I give up, it's like I quit the race and life has become meaningless. I feel the only way to accomplish this is by a personal relationship with Jesus. It is through that relationship that I receive strength, endurance, and hope to keep moving forward in understanding what I must shed and what I must cling to so that I will become more of what God has willed for me. When I get out of myself, I find out who I truly am and what my purpose in life is. That's the end of the quote. My friends, that purpose-driven answer was not prepared by some great theologian or by some noted philosopher. It was written by a prisoner. To put a further face on our incarcerated brothers and sisters, I recommend that you watch a video by the name of Prison Dreams. Um, there will be a, some notification to all these people. <coughs> it's, it's on YouTube. You can get it. <coughs> Excuse me. It's uh, prepared by uh, Brittany Morehouse, who uh, is a well-known Washington, D.C. and Cleveland, Ohio video journalist. Um, you will uh, be notified about how to get access to it. So as you think about Tommy, as you watch that video, as you think about others trying to turn their lives to a good purpose, I ask a simple question. Are these bad people? Or is there something here worth all of us working on? A talented national author, Maura Poston Zagrins, has written a Random House book about my personal injury, <laughs> injury my personal journey from president of the University of Notre Dame, Australia, where we pronounce it right, uh, it's Notre Dame. Uh, my personal journey from the president of the University of Notre Dame, Australia, to prison chaplain. By far, the best calling I've ever had. The book contains my draft of a crime peace plan designed to interrupt the cycle of crime. The plan is not about how to be soft on crime but instead it's on how to be smart and crying. We don't have time to, uh, for me to uh, review the details of the crime peace plan, but I will provide you with a short synopsis. The first thing we've got to do in this country is convert the goal of our criminal justice system from punishment to healing. Presently, we have two goals for our criminal justice system. One is security, making sure people are safe, and the other is punishment. But we learned a couple of centuries ago from psychiatrists and psychologists that you can't punish someone into good behavior. You can reward people into good behavior, but you can't punish them into good behavior. Anyone who's a parent knows that much. The second thing we need to do is change our procedure for our system from adversarial to collaborative. We've got to have everybody in the system working together on it. Thirdly, we need to start with changing the attitude of the police. Keep in mind that the police are the first responders to 
every, to most criminal activity. And they're the ones that ought to be making recommendations on what to do. Don't just say there was a, a house problem. Say who you, make a recommendation on what might happen. It may be changed as it goes through the system. But at least we ought to be getting recommendations out of the police about what to do. The next thing we need to do is to appoint rather than elect prosecutors. Sometimes prosecutors, in the fury of trying to be uh, reelected, do some things that we don't want done. The other thing we need to do is to have every lawyer, a lot of lawyers in this room, every lawyer should have the responsibility to represent at least one criminal defendant at all times. We got to recognize that uh, in this country, ju justice is dependent on economics. People who have a lot of money can get justice. People who have no money generally cannot. The next thing we need to do is, is add to the code of ethics. We don't have a code of ethics. Everybody thinks lawyers have a code of ethics. But we have something called the rules of professional responsibility. But we need to really talk about classical ethics for anybody involved in the criminal justice system. The other thing we need to do is change the definitions and categories of crimes. Compared to other countries, we have a lot of things that are crimes in this country that would not be crimes in other countries. We need to be more careful in how we designate what a crime is. We need to have better categories. There's a big difference between um, a, a rape that is violent and a statutory rape when someone's underage. We need to at least designate that. Um, I do suggest in my uh, crime peace plan that the sales of non-gateway drugs, such as marijuana, not be legalized, but be sold by the state, like we have done with alcohol and tobacco, so that we have some regulation on it. And so that, by the way, uh, the state makes the money on it. Right now, we're supporting, thank you very much, we're supporting gangs and uh, um, the mafia by uh, their principal industry is the selling of illegal drugs. We need to work on the judicial system. Um, the judicial system, and we know a lot of wonderful judges around here, but the judicial system is now shackled. The judges are shackled by having determinative sentencing rather than indeterminative sentencing. Just to give you an example, two guys go to prison. They both get 20 years what they call 20 do 10. If they do, if they have maximum good time, they only have to do 10. Now the problem with that system is um, if two guys go and one does everything he can to behave and everything else, and the other does nothing, they both get out at the same time, folks. We've got to change that. Incarceration, we've got to start treating people who are incarcerated as if they were human beings. I had a circumstance where one of the prisoners that I served 
died in prison. I could talk a lot about how that happened, but in any event, he died in prison, and he was, by his own request, he was cremated. And uh, his wife wanted him cremated, and the crematory called me. They said, do you have the uh, address of the widow? I said, yeah, what do, why do you need it? They said, well, we'll mail her the remains. I said, yo, what? Uh, we'll mail her. I said, you mean the United States Postal Service that sometimes gets things there and sometimes doesn't? They said, yes, that's what we do. And I said, you're going to mail a human being? And, they, and the head of the crematory said, oh, this was not a human being. It was a prisoner. Now, there aren't many things that make me mad, but that made me mad. So I told him, I said, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put those remains in a, an urn or a paper bag, and I want you to put it on your desk because I want to talk to you. Well, when are you coming? I said, within minutes, and I want it on your desk. I don't want it out in some reception room. And we had a nice conversation, and I, <laughs> and I took the uh, remains to the widow. He said, she lives in Wisconsin. I said, I don't care if she lives in Timbuktu. I'm taking these remains to her. Um, we need to have sentence modifications, like parole, etc. I went to a parole hearing. The parole board, nice people, I'm sure, but they had no idea who they were talking about. All they had was a file, and they could look at the file, but they didn't know anything. They had no idea what the behavior was of, uh, of the people. We need to think about post-entry. Um, People say to me, why do you want to give these people a second chance? And I said, hey, I'm, I'm not into second chances. I want to give them a first chance, because most have never had that. And uh, uh, they say, well, you want to let them out? I say, no, I want to let them in to heaven. And that's my job. And we got to think about that. I did a, I keynoted a program on women's incarceration and... Uh, I met a woman, I stay for the whole thing, and I met a woman who did eight years in a prison. She's been out for 20 years. She can't get a job because she's very honest. It says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? She checks the infamous box. She can't get a The job is all of a sudden gone. So to get a better detail, you're going to need to read this book, called Camarado, I Give You My Hand. The title is uh, taken from the last stanza of Walt Whitman's epic poem, Song of the Open Road. I'm not going to suggest that any of you read much of Walt Whitman, since that might be considered cruel and unusual. <laughs> but I want you to consider that last stanza, where Whitman says, Camarado, I give you my hand. I give you my love more precious than money. I give you myself before preaching or law. Will you give me yourself? Will you come travel with me? Shall we stick by each other as long as we live? So as we think about Tommy and the crocheting cons and those others in prison who want to turn their lives to a good purpose, what if we stick by our spiritual brothers and sisters as long as we live?
What if we let our legislators know that our vote depends on turning the criminal justice system completely around? Change the mission of the system from punishment to healing, starting with the police and continuing through post-conviction. What if young people would say, we're not going to settle for success, we're going for significance. And there is significance in helping those people whom society regards as the least and the last, but who we recognize are simply the lost and the lonely. What if we were to form Camarado Corps on every campus and in every community? What if we all together said, I'm damn mad and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not willing to have my tax money wasted on systems that simply aren't working. What if we, lawyers as professionals, brought glad tidings to the lowly, healed the brokenhearted, proclaimed liberty to the captives, and released to the prisoners who can be released? What if we were to help all those who need a hand up but would never ask for a handout? We all know the answer to those what-ifs. We would help people in poverty live a life of human dignity, as Pope Francis asks us to do. There would be less welfare payments. We would dramatically reduce the cycle of crime in this country. There would be less crime, fewer victims, fewer lives wasted, fewer prisons, billions of dollars saved in corrections budgets. Judeo-Christian social teaching is about the preferential option for the poor. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for those in prison. Judeo-Christian social teaching is all about action, what we refer to as active compassion. So I'm going to close with a thought given to me by a maximum security prisoner who has changed his life around. And Steve reminds us all, active compassion is God's language. Everything else is just talk. Thank you for your attention. Colleague Karen Eifler and I have a, have a small gift to, uh, to give to David to, to try to express our appreciation for uh, his presence among us and uh, a deeply moving talk. So let's uh, thank him one more time. It's going to open it. Well, I can't open it. I'm, I'm a priest. I, I, I have deacons to do this. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, no, no offense to any deacons in here. So. Could I read the card? Because the, the gift only makes sense if you oh. hear the card. We, Karen has asked to read the card. 
Because the gift only makes sense if you know what the card says. <laughs> I like to make things as complicated as possible. The mics are working great. Uh, Excellent. I would have brought an opener, but the prison won't let me carry a knife. <laughs> um, the passage on the front is the very um, verse from Scripture that Father Link quoted about visiting the poor, and it's taken from the St. John's Bible, which we house here. And so we say, Dear Father Link, one of UP's great treasures is a heritage edition of the St. John's Bible, the first fully hand-rendered Bible created in over 500 years. That's the source of this volume of cherished prayers, you may now open that, um, <laughs> which we hope you will enjoy. Now that you've provided our keynote for the Red Mass Dinner, you're officially one of UP's great treasures as well. Thank you for your generous yes and many blessings on you and your ministry. All peace from the Garaventa Center and the University of Portland. Now how am I going to open this? <laughs> You need a shiv, huh? I need a shiv, yeah. Has anybody got a shiv? <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you all. I, uh, uh, in case it is not apparent to you, uh, I love being a priest, and I love doing prison ministry. And uh, if I can ask you just one favor, Say some prayers for the guys. Um, they're not all bad people. I'm not going to turn them all around. In fact, I don't turn anybody around. But, but the Holy Spirit does. And I'm privileged to be part of that. And so I ask you all at least to say some prayers for the people, the men and women who are incarcerated. Uh, because some of them, we'd be much better off as a society if they were out here uh, sitting at these tables. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And good night. Thank you very much. Thank you.